All right, it's good to be gathered once again and come underneath God's Word together, the book of Mark. Uh, there is uh, a general reality that all of us know well uh, in this world, uh, and that would be that the teacher is greater than the student. Right? That's what makes them a teacher. They have wisdom about a subject, knowledge about a subject that exceeds the student, and therefore they teach the student. The teacher is greater than the student. Or you think of sports. The coach is greater than the athlete. They have knowledge of the sport that is exceeding the athlete. Or in music, the instructor is greater than the pupil. They are there to teach and train uh, the pupil. There's also a second reality that we oftentimes experience, and that would be sometimes the student gets to a place where they are equal with the teacher, and sometimes even surpasses the teacher, and they go on to teach other people, right? And both of these are very healthy realities to recognize. If the student doesn't recognize that the teacher is greater than them, it can be a cause for all sorts of trouble, right? And so it's good for us to recognize the student is greater than the teacher, but also to humbly recognize that sometimes the student surpasses the teacher, and that is good and healthy. That's, that's what... Our, how our world works on a horizontal level, right? On a vertical level, it's not quite like that. The first reality is true. The creator is greater than the creation, right? God is greater than our minds. God's wisdom far exceeds the power of the human brain. God is infinite in his wisdom, in his power, in his faithfulness, in his goodness, we are limited. We are flawed, right? And it's good for us to recognize that. The second reality is never true in a vertical relationship, right? We will never exceed God's wisdom. That will never happen. If it did, it would make us God. So the second reality in a vertical relationship will never be the case. Our wisdom will always be under God's because he is perfect he is all-wise, all-knowing, and we are flawed. Now, the sooner we get that and the grasp that, the actually the better it will be for us, right? It will, it will lead to freedom in the world if we can grasp that and embrace that, that God's wisdom is greater than ours, that God's ways are far beyond what we could ever think. Our opinion is not needed for God. And the faster we learn that, the better it will be for us. The faster we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 19 that the, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, reviving the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law of the Lord is perfect. Our minds are not perfect. Our opinions are not perfect. They change constantly. God's word is solid. Or to be able to say with Peter, along with Isaiah, that all flesh is like grass. And all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flowers fade. But the word of the Lord remains forever. 
right? Our minds, our wisdom, our opinions, they come and go. You're here today, gone tomorrow. No one will remember, remember any of us in the next hundred years, let alone our opinions and thoughts. And yet God's word remains forever. It is steadfast. It is sure. As soon as we can say with the Apostle Paul, as we think about the wisdom of God and his ways and his word, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has ever become God's counselor as if God needed counsel of what to do? And who's ever given a gift to him that God needs to repay back to us? For from him and through him and back to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes, that author ends the book as he's searching for joy in this upside-down world that's tainted with sin. He ends the book after he examines it all. He says, the end of the matter, all has been examined. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, both good and evil. God's word is perfect, reviving the soul. Our wisdom will never exceed God, and the faster we learn that, the faster we embrace that and live in the good of that, the more free we will be, the more joyful, the more restful we will be to say, God, you don't need my opinion in anything. Now, the problem is, we're not born into the world that way. We actually think God does need our opinion. We, we think we can teach God a thing or two. When we view our life and the circumstances, we think, well, God, you don't know what you're doing. And we think if we tell you what you should do, you'll learn something. I mean, we become very much like the people in our passage here today. Now, we might not do it so overtly, as these people come to Jesus and they try to trap him. There stands their creator right before them. And they want to mince words and trap him and stand over him. What they should be doing is sitting at his feet, learning, absorbing. And yet they want to be over him. And we're very much like that. And we should take note today how Jesus silences the interrogators. We should be encouraged by the wisdom of Jesus, by the wisdom of God. We should, we should be warned about the interrogator in all of us. How we want to try to instruct God how he's supposed to be. And we should also confess and commit once again, God, you are the only wise God. Your word indeed proves true. And we will follow and submit with our whole self. So we actually come into a, a right in the middle of a day at the temple. So we're in this passage. Uh, it actually, the, the day started in 1127 last week. If you look at that again, 1127, and they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So now he starts having this confrontation that we saw last week. And at the end of chapter 12, this day is completed, chapter 13, verse 1, and he came out of the temple. So we actually have this long section, all, uh, all talking about one day that Jesus had in the temple. Uh, and uh, there's four units in there. 
first one we saw last week where he declares condemnation on the religious leaders and his victory over them as they reject them. And it's actually through his rejection that he gains victory over them. Today we will see 13 to 34, and this is Jesus having this strong confrontation as they keep sending different groups to him to try to trap him. And he will silence the interrogators. If you look uh, down at verse 35, that we'll, we'll hit that next week. He then warns about the scribes in verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He's going to point out their flawed interpretation of scripture. And then verse 38, he warns against the character of the scribe. Beware of the scribes. So he's going to silence his interrogators, then he's going to warn against them, and then this is where the whole climax of the section happens, right at verse 30, uh, or verse 41, is after you've kind of gone through, like Jesus is condemning the religious leaders, he's warning against them, he has silenced them, well then who are the worshipers of God if the religious elites aren't? And this is where Mark and Jesus hold up this poor widow and say, this is true worship. She has nothing and yet gives everything. She doesn't stand over God like the religious leaders want to do. She comes under God. She doesn't exalt herself like the scribes do and is self-intoxicated, but she's self-giving, self-offering of her whole self. So that's really, I think, where the, the whole climax of the, this whole day of teaching is, is to, to tear down the ways of the religious leaders to demonstrate that that's not true worship, it's empty, self-exalting, and to hold up this woman, this poor uh, widow. We're not going to cover all that today, obviously. We're just going to hit verses 13 uh, to 34, where we see that true worshipers, they're, they're, they're not like the religious leaders who want to stand over God, stand over God's word. Instead, they come underneath God, like the poor uh, widow. So we'll work through these scenes that we have here, I mean, a pretty in-depth passage. It's a unique one. It's kind of cool because you can, you can easily teach the whole day at the temple and you'll kind of get one theme, but you can also teach easily each individual scene here and uh, you're going to get a slightly different flavor, but that's why you want to see the whole thing. Uh, we have a good three-hour sermon here and we'll do 30, 30 minutes, so can't hit it all. I'm not going to dive in really deep onto each section. We'll just kind of hear the overall what's going on. As it's pointing forward to who the true worshipers are, are those who come underneath God's word. So let's check out the first trap that's set, verse 13. They sent to him, this would be the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes that we saw last week. Uh, they, they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Pause there for a minute. You, you can hear this. It, it, on the surface, it almost seems like they're coming with an honest question. Of course, Mark tips us off right away. They're coming to, to trap Jesus, uh, which uh, we've already seen that happen throughout the book. Chapter 8, they tried to trap, uh, the Pharisees tried to chat, trap Jesus, but he left, if you remember that. Chapter 10, they try to trap him with this question about divorce. 
but he triumphs over them there. Chapter 7, they accuse Jesus of being unclean. Chapter 3, they accuse Jesus of working with Satan. So they've been about this the whole book. And as soon as you read it, uh, you, you can almost listen to the first readers as someone's reading it and they're huddled up in a, a small room as someone's reading it out. And it, this is the Pharisees come to them and they're, boo! Right? It's not these guys again. So you know that this is not a sincere question. Uh, he even tells us further in verse 35, it's hypocrisy. Why do you put me to the test? So what is, what is the trap? Well, you actually see it in, the, in the, the, the two groups that come to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So these two groups are actually opposed to one another uh, politically and theologically. But they'll come together as allies for the sake of having a common enemy, which is Jesus. And they, wanted, they both want to destroy him, so they'll come together, not to work out their differences, but to come against Jesus and try to trap him. So the issue is uh, the Herodians believed theologically and morally that the Jewish people were supposed to pay taxes to Caesar. That God, God would, would bring his grace through that, and they, they should do that. The Pharisees were very strongly opposed to paying taxes. After all, Israel was the land that God had given them. Why would they pay a foreign invader to allow them to worship there and live there? So the Pharisees were actually the majority voice, and they taught that it was theologically and morally wrong to pay taxes. So they they had a huge faction here on whether or not we should pay taxes, and they constantly fought over it. And yet here they're coming to try to trap Jesus, because how does he answer that without upsetting someone? You see, if if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, well, then the Rhodians can just run over to to the government leaders and say, look, he is trying to start a revolution. He's trying to go against the government. And they can get him imprisoned. Or if he says, no, you don't have to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if if he said don't have to pay taxes, the Rhodians would go to the government. If he said you you should pay taxes, uh, now I'm getting confused. Oh, yeah, then the Pharisees, the Pharisees, which is the majority voice, are going to be very upset. And all the people that follow after the Pharisees' teaching, which is the majority, are going to say, Forget this guy. We're not listening to him anymore. He's trying, to, he's trying to make a sin by giving taxes to the evil empire over us. We're not doing that because we're God's people. We're separate. And so what is he going to do? He's trapped. It's locked and sealed. He's standing on a landmine. And so he continues, verse 15, uh, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So you notice here, Jesus actually doesn't have a denarius. This would be uh, a one day's uh, labor, or one day's worth of, of wages for labor. Jesus doesn't actually have one, uh, but this is actually part of the argument. He, he looks to the, the group who is there accusing him, says, anybody got a denarius? Anybody using Caesar's money to buy food, to buy your goods in the marketplace? Anybody in, engaged in the system? Let me, let me see it. So he gets the coin, and just like our coin would have inscriptions on it, or pictures, it's got the image of Caesar, which... Uh, which means that Caesar is in control of this domain. He, he rules over this, right? And on the inscription on the coin, it, it, it 
most likely, would have said Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. And it, and it tells everybody in that land that Tiberius Caesar Augustus rules. And if you want to buy food, if you want to buy materials, you got to use this coin. And they're engaged in it. And so Jesus then says, well, if you're willing to already use this system, and he's in control of this system, then pay him what you owe, what, what you owe him. Render to him what is his. But then he says, you got a bigger, you got a bigger issue, actually. That there's a bigger question you should be asking. Because what, what image is on you? You are made in the image of God. God's inscription and image is implanted or inscribed on you. So yeah, give your, give your taxes to Caesar, but you got a bigger question you got to be asking. You are to be giving your whole self to God. And here's the thing. God is standing right before them. The Son of God in flesh. And rather than sitting at his feet, they want to be over him. And they leave. What a, what a sad thing happened there. We see here Jesus silenced his interrogators, and he's doing that all the time, and he will do that. Anybody who comes up against him and rejects his ways and rejects his word will one day be silenced. And I'm sure there are some here today who you find great joy in trying to trap God's word and and God's people and throwing up these arguments, and it feels good to be able to say, well, yeah, God's not going to... Pull one over on me, you religious people. And it feels good. I know I used to enjoy that before I followed Christ, to to throw out these questions and think, gotcha. But God will silence you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But one day you will face him. And he will silence all those who come against him as interrogators. So the Lord calls you, come today. Come under the Lord Jesus. Don't try to stand over him and trap him. Come under his care. Well, we got one, one down. Who's next here? Uh, this is, I was thinking about uh, the, the way this goes, and I was thinking about Kyle. He's not here, but uh, at a men's retreat, if you, if you go and watch people play ping pong, you can watch Kyle stay at the board the whole time. You know, line up all the guys and Bam, bam, all right, who's next? And it's just, you can't stop the dude. This is what's going on here. The Pharisees are gone, the Herodians are gone. Who's next? Verse 18, the Sadducees come to him, who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the Leverite uh, marriage vow to care for your uh, deceased brother. There were seven brothers, verse 20, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, and he left no offspring. And the third likewise. And then all seven of them left no offspring. Now, last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Because all seven of them had her as their wife. Now, if I were 
envisioning this scene, uh, I envision them asking that question, and it's sort of like a journalist you might see as they're asking a politician a question. They, they kind of throw up their defeater question, and they, they try to sit with a straight face, but they got that smirk underneath them. You, you ever see that? They're holding it in like that, and you can see they're smirking because they think they got them. And this is exactly what I would think is going here with the Sadducees. Mark tip, tip, tips us off right, off right out of the gates here, verse 18. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. So the, Sad, the Sadducees held to the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and they held that those were God's word, and only what is written we shall follow. The remaining books after that they did not hold to, and which the Pharisees did, which the Pharisees held to the, the whole Old Testament as well as the traditions. And that's where they, the Pharisees actually held to a, a resurrection and the belief in angels. Sadducees, they didn't. They did not believe a resurrection was to come. They thought this was the only life there was, and it doesn't teach it in Mo, the books of Moses, and therefore it cannot be true. And so what they really have here is, that this is probably an analogy they used to use on the Pharisees regularly. This is their defeater analogy, right? How are you going to answer? And they think they have Jesus once again, but they don't. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither of the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. And so the argument here is, first, he points out that the whole premise of your question is actually off. You're asking about marriage in heaven, which there is a heaven, there is a resurrection, but there's no marriage there. So the premise of your question is wrong, because there will not be marriage in heaven. But they'll be like the angels, which they also don't agree with. And then he comes back to, now, the resurrection. Moses does talk about it. But you're too stubborn in your ways. You're too logical in your mind. You're too trusting in your own imagination to think that there's a resurrection. But Moses talks about it. When he says that I am the God of Abraham. Now, Moses came 400 years after Abraham. So Abraham is not alive anymore. So why is God saying, I am the God of Abraham? That would make no sense if Abraham had died and that was just it. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob and of Isaac because they have been resurrected. You are quite wrong. What strong words there that Jesus gives I, you know, I don't know about you, but as I read these encounters, I enjoy seeing the wisdom of Christ come out as, as they try to trap him and they think they have him. And in his wisdom, he clearly uh, dismantles their argument. And I think to myself, man, like what, what would it be like to live all week 
trusting in the wisdom of Christ and enjoying the wisdom of Jesus. To know that Jesus is always wise, that our God is always in control, and he always chooses what is best and wise for us, and his word is perfect and wise for me. How great it would be to enter into this week and live in the good of that. Would that not help with our anxieties? And with our safeguarding our world to try to control things and protect ourselves always? Would that not help with our greed, our fear? May God grant us faith to trust in the wisdom of Jesus Monday morning. Well, we have one more group that comes up against Jesus here. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up. And he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him. And pause there just so we get understand what the scribes are. Uh, The scribe, uh, the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees had scribes. A scribe would be sort of a lawyer uh, or kind of an elite scholar, particularly in the law of God. So again, the Sadducees Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, had different (laughs) theological views. uh, But within that, within both of the groups, they had their elites. Their, their lawyers, the, the, the people that were the top dogs on keeping watch over the law of God and making the judgments. And those were called the scribes. They were like the lawyers of each of the groups. Which group this guy belonged to, we don't know. Uh, but he evidently is listening to the arguments. He's watching. And he sees that Jesus has been answering both the Sadducees, uh, uh, <laughs> the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Herodians, and that he's answering them uh, wisely. And uh, he says, I, I got a question. I, I, got, I got one here. Because this is an argument that the uh, scribes had had for a long time. What, which of all the 600 plus commandments that God gives, which one is the most important? He's going to put it on Jesus. And that's what he's going to ask him. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, that's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. If you see in verse 31 there again, just so we catch the argument, I says, no, no other commandment is greater than these. Love God, love neighbor. So you can think of this in a couple, a couple different ways to, to try to picture this. You can think of love God, love neighbor sort of as the house, the external piece of the house, both the roof and then the walls, as the shell of the house. And all the other commandments will house uh, will be housed in these two commandments. Or you can think of them uh, as a very foundation, 
upon which all the other commandments will be built, or the, the, the good soil out of which is birthed all the, all the rest of the commands. These two are the ones uh, that all the other commandments come out of. And so the, the Apostle Paul sp- speaks a little bit like this in, uh, in Romans 13, when he, when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another fulfills the law. That it's the actual goal. If you, if you love another, you've reached the, the goal where the law is headed. And then he continues, uh, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, he says, is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, all those commandments that he just lifted, uh, listed, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, all have neighborly uh, like movement towards them. And so they're all summed up in the this, this simple word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what Jesus is putting a priority on this. And this is going to be key for the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, sheesh, we're, I'm just going to change that. It's now the Pharisees. <laughs> this is going to be key because they, they love their sacrifices. We've, we've seen Jesus go in and turn things over in the temple. But Jesus is putting a priority on this. He's saying, look, you can do all those other things. But if you've missed the essential commandment, all of that means nothing. Amos tells the Israelites, I hate your festivals. Supposedly you do these for me, but I hate them. Because you don't actually love me. You don't care for other people. This is all show. And for God to say, I I hate the, the very things that they were commanded to do is strong, but it's because they, they're missing the first love. Or Hosea uh, tells, God in, in the book of Hosea says, that I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. That's what I want, is steadfast love and knowing God. There's, there's a priority that Jesus is putting on this. That, in other words, though, on one sense, you can do the latter. You can do the burnt offerings. You can do all these things and not love God. And God hates that. But if you truly love God and love neighbor, you will do the rest. Because that, that's what you will carry out. All the other commandments come underneath that, and you will actually carry that out. It's also good to recognize that uh, if you saw the scribe ask, what's the, the number one commandment? Jesus says you can't separate this. You can't separate love of neighbor from love of God. It's not possible. That's why John in his, uh, in his epistle said, for we, we have this commandment from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. You, you can't love your brother if you don't, lo- or you can't love God and not love your brother. That's impossible. It's, it's, it's a, a fake picture of what it means to, to love God. And Jesus says, no, it's both. Now, the surprise of the text is actually that the scribe agrees with Jesus. The scribe says, you're right, teacher. What you have said is right. And then Jesus responds, says, you're not far from the kingdom. You're, you're close. He doesn't say you're in the kingdom, but you're close. It's like right around the corner. 
And the greater surprise of the text is that the scribe seemingly walks away. He's so close. And yet he goes on because what he'll have to do is actually lay down his own opinions and come fully underneath God's word. Now, I think where the saddest part of this passage is actually the very last line. After that, no one dared to ask him any questions. Now, in one sense, that's triumphant, right? Jesus silenced all his interrogators. That's good. But the sad part is they have the Son of God standing right before them. And rather than coming underneath them, that's not what they want. They want to be over him. And if they can't be over him, they can't trap him, they can't beat him, then they just move on. That's a sad, sad thing. And the hard part is, you know, I want to point my finger at them and be like, man, I'm, I'm so glad that I would never try to tell God the way he needs to be or try to trick him or try to say, no, this is the way the world needs to work. These are my opinions. But I'm really not that far from these guys. And so the question I was asking myself, in, in what ways and what reasons do I try to place myself over the word of God? as if God needs to go by my opinions and my views. Why would I do that? I came up with 14 reasons why I do that. I'm not going to do them all. You can do that in small group if you like. But let me just say, you know, I'm afraid sometimes of what God would call me to. Maybe God would call me to forgive this person. I don't want to. It actually, frankly, feels better to be angry at them. Maybe God would call me to stop grumbling about my circumstances. Frankly, I like grumbling. Gives me a little bit of a sense of control. Maybe God would call me to suffer and hardship, like Jesus has been telling us all along. And I don't want that. So it's easy to just play loose and fast and soft with the word of God rather than come all the way underneath it. Because then I feel safe and I feel in control. Or the, the, the powerful voice of the culture can, can tempt us to play soft with the word of God and, and want to stand over it. Obviously, we know all the, all the talk about sexuality and gender. But also use of language, use of money. What, what, what should it look like to live in this world? The power, the, the power of the culture can move us in ways to be soft with God's word. And sometimes, you know, it just feels better in the short term to keep my opinions and to go my way than God's ways. I can, I can pursue the pleasures of life. I can do what I want, and I can actually enjoy the, what we might call tolerable sins. And I can, I can enjoy pride. I can enjoy grumbling. I can enjoy greed. I can enjoy lust. As long as I don't let it get out of control, I can enjoy it. When God's word tells me to flee all of that with everything I have. So it just it feels safer to stand over God's word. Yes, there's a, a Pharisee and a Pharisee in me still. But the great news is, the Lord's table reminds us that we're accepted before God, not because we're so different than the Pharisee, 
but that in spite of the fact that I am just like the Pharisee, Christ came and he died to pay for those very sins, for, to pay for the way that I want, I want to tell God how he needs to be and how my world needs to be. And it's because yet I'm still like that, Christ died and we are accepted before God. As we partake of the Lord's table uh, this morning, let us be reminded that we're accepted before God not because we're so different from the world, but because even though we live very much like them, sadly, many times, Christ died in our place. And yet, wonder of wonders, in the gospel, Christ has inaugurated the new covenant and actually given us power to increasingly grow so that we become more like Christ. If you're a follower of